0: Good evening, everyone. And uh, thanks to Glenn and to Joanne and Sophie and Adam and John, and to James and Mario and James at the back. I'm just gonna jump into this. So uh, what happens whenever you lose or feel like you're losing the love you once had for God and for others? It can happen. It does happen, as you probably know, and it did happen, as we're about to discover. Love for God and love for others sit at the heart of Christian faith and practice and witness. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then added to that core command, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus emphasized this himself on at least one occasion, explaining to someone that these were, in fact, the greatest commands of the Christian faith. It kind of summed it all up. And as always, Jesus pushed it even further and went on to say, we should also even love our enemies. Love is the defining feature and characteristic of authentic Christianity. Paul made the point that when love is absent, our Christian lives make a serious racket. And it is the first segment of the fruit of the Spirit. It is evidence of the Spirit's transforming work in our lives. But what happens when we lose it? Whenever we realize or sense, you know something? Our heart just isn't in it anymore, maybe the way it once was. It's not that we have necessarily abandoned the faith or walked away, but we're sort of simply going through the motions. We still believe by and large, but it's become routine. It's all become a bit pedestrian. We still turn up, we sing, we pray, but the spark, the passion, the love that we once knew and felt and even experienced has gone or it's going or it has reduced significantly. And the question is, what causes that to happen? Plus, is it not, in fact, inevitable over time? Like, surely you can't maintain, you can't sustain and experience that initial level, that first love you once had, can you? But more importantly, if we recognize that this might be the case, how do you get it back? How do you rediscover the love you had at first? How do you guard against ever losing it moving forward? Well, and I appreciate lots of you know exactly where I'm going with this. If you have a Bible, please turn to Revelation chapter 2. For those who are here this evening who aren't normally with us in the mornings, we as a church are reading Revelation together on Sunday mornings. And earlier today, we got to the point in this letter where, in John's first mind altering vision, he sees Jesus walking among seven lampstands, which are the seven local churches that are listed in the first chapter of Revelation, which are then addressed and spoken to in chapters two and three. And so what I have decided to do, now whether this is for good or ill, I've decided to spend Sunday evenings during these worship and word services, listening to, looking at, and reflecting on the seven specific messages to these churches and to all churches. That is rather than do it on Sunday mornings, partly because if we took seven weeks in chapters two and three in the mornings, we would never get out of revelation and I need to get out of Revelation. But there is also a sense that I wanted these evening services to kind of sit alongside our morning service. Plus, I also think, and many have done this in the past, that you can take these two chapters, not so much isolate them, because that's always dangerous, but you can consider them separately. That's okay, it's perfectly legit. So let's get into this. Now, some people refer to these as the seven letters to the seven churches. But given, if you've been with us on Sunday mornings, given that Revelation is a letter, it is one letter to these churches, I think it's far more accurate to describe these seven as particular messages for each of the churches that have relevance and a bearing on all of the churches, including ours. And so, although each church is addressed individually, look at verse 7 with me of chapter 2. Because, and you know this, whenever the first message is addressed to the church in Ephesus, in verse 7 it says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says, not to the church in Ephesus, but what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Jump down to verse 11. After Smyrna is addressed, Again, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, and the pattern continues. So not so much letters as particular messages, pastoral prophetic messages, written to specific churches, real historical congregations, but pertinent and appropriate to any and every church, including Windsor Baptist. Now, all of these messages start with the same line. Look at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now, who or what is that? One of the things about Revelation that I've been attempting to stress in the morning is that this letter, this type, type of writing, pulls back the curtain. And reveals that things are not always as they seem. Or to be more accurate, they are not only as they seem. So when it comes to the idea that each church has an angel, like a guardian angel, I suppose the question is, why not? Now I know some people think it refers to the messenger of each church and therefore to the pastor or to the shepherd. But I'm not really sure about that. Because nowhere else in Scripture, nowhere else in the New Testament, is that idea, that wording mentioned or used to refer to a church leader. Plus, and I'll say it before you do, I am certainly no angel. There is another idea that this this term refers to, the spirit as in small s, the spirit of a church again, I'm not convinced. Angels are real. And throughout the rest of Revelation, and in fact, throughout the rest of the Bible, for that matter, that word refers to a supernatural being. And so, why wouldn't there be? Or why couldn't there be an angel of each church? Discuss. Well, back to the text. Because the person speaking to each church is very clear. It's Jesus. look at verse one. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you're here this morning, you know that is Jesus. There's no shadow of a doubt that this message to this church is from none other than the resurrected, glorified, exalted Jesus, which means that even before you hear it, you know that it needs to be taken extremely seriously. You need to pin your ears back. You need to open up your heart and mind. So back to verse one for a second, because as I say, the recipient of this first message is the church in Ephesus. Ephesus is the fourth or was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, population of roughly quarter of a million. It was the center of business, center of politics, center of religious pluralism at the time, home of the worship of the fertility goddess Diana, amongst many other small g gods. It was also a hub for the emperor cult. And so for example, there was a temple in Ephesus to Domitian who was the emperor at that time. Ephesus was quite a place. But as we also know, there was a church there. There was a group of urban disciples who had been established by Paul and a couple of his co-workers, Priscilla and Aquila. Now, Paul left Ephesus at one point, but he returned and he spent two and a half years ministering in that place and in that church. It was the longest time he spent anywhere. And then whenever he was forced to flee that great city Timothy took over as pastor, mentored by Paul. This was some church. It was quite a church. It was a highly influential church. And so then Jesus begins to speak to it. Look at verse two. I know. And again, look down with me at chapters two and three, because every single message to every single church starts with those exact two words. And I don't want us to rush too quickly to discover what he knows about Ephesus before pausing and simply making the point that Jesus knows. I stressed this this morning. He knows everything. Nothing is hidden from Jesus. His eyes are like blazing fire, to quote chapter one. He sees it all. He sees us from the inside out. And so I can say with confidence, Jesus knows knows Windsor Baptist Church. He knows what's going on. He knows what's happening. He knows who we are. And I realize that can be a sobering revelation and discovery, but it's also incredibly important and reassuring because it means he can speak into our lives with understanding. And I need Jesus to speak into my life. I need Jesus to speak into our church's life. So he knows you tonight. He knows me and he knows us completely. So what does he know about the church in Ephesus? Well, verses two and three. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered. You have endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. In all but one message out of seven, In all but one message out of seven, Jesus starts by commending what he knows about each church. And we'll eventually get to the one church where Jesus has absolutely nothing positive to say. But in Ephesus, the compliments, the praise, the good points are impressive. There's six of them here. I know your deeds, you're a doing church. I know your hard work. You're an active church. I know you're perseverance. You're a determined church. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people. You take sin seriously. You're a church that stands for truth. I know that you test what people are saying and you call out false teaching for my name. You're a sound church. You've endured hardship. I know that. You're a suffering church and you've not given up. I know you haven't. You're a church that's keeping going. Now, I know we all know what's coming next, that the message of Jesus comes with a sting in the tail, and it's a seriously big sting. But let's not miss the fact that at one level, you cannot imagine a more faithful church. As John Stott, the late John Stott, reflected on this church, he wrote in summary, they are energetic in their service, patient in their suffering, orthodox in their faith. Or as Juan Sanchez writes in his book, Seven Dangers Facing Your Church, in a difficult ministry context, they crossed all their doctrinal A's and dotted all their ecclesiastical A's, or dotted T's and ecclesiastical A's. This was a good church. But then comes the stinging indictment. And the thing about this, as we're about to see, is that this is so serious that unless they sort it out, Jesus is going to put their light out. And if the prospect of that does not send a shiver down your spine and a shockwave through your heart, nothing will. So what is it that Jesus had against them? What is it that was their potentially fatal flaw? What is it that causes all of the above commendations, all six of them, to be put at significant risk? Well, it turns out they lack or they have forsaken or they have abandoned one thing. But the problem is this one thing means everything or to quote Juan Sanchez, who actually spoke at this year's Baptist Pastors Conference, he actually said, all of the above, the commendations mean nothing without this one thing. That's strong. So what is it? Verses four and five. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You see, when love is absent or is disappearing, any church is in real danger. When our love for God and our love for others is at a critically low level, we personally are in grave danger. The Apostle John makes the point in his second letter that anyone who does not love does not know God. I mean, it is that serious. The church in Ephesus, these urban disciples were busy doing lots of stuff. They believed the right things. They did the right things. But for all their good, they had abandoned the love they once had. Their heads were still in it at some level, but their hearts were miles away. Earl Palmer put it like this. The first love had been abandoned, and in its place is the starchy, high-cholesterol diet of activity and church work that will never nourish the soul. But you know, the question I want to ask is why? Why did they abandon their first love? Or how did it happen? How did a church with such a rich heritage, with such key personnel involved in their life and backstory, who were so doctrinally orthodox and theologically discerning, how and why did they lose their first love? We don't actually know. And Jesus doesn't say, but it's gone. Did it happen overnight? Possibly. But more than likely, it happened quietly and by gradual, imperceptible shifts of focus as other things become the object of affection and attention. Other things become a priority and a pursuit. Other things become a value and a vision. Christian love for God and others can so easily become compromised. I'm speaking personally here. I shared this morning, I sometimes feel All too often feel I have lost my first love. I'm just going through the motions, and we need, and I need to step back. And I wonder, do I hold back as I've never done before on time with God? Do I hold back in worship? Do I hold back in sacrifice? Do I hold back in intimacy? Do I hold back in compassion? And according to Jesus, the consequences are serious because the flickering light might just go out or worse still, it might get put out. But there is hope. There is a way back. There is an opportunity, says Jesus, to reignite and rediscover your first love. And Jesus offers it to these Christians in Ephesus. And he exhorts the church in Ephesus and he exhorts us and he exhorts me to do three things. The first is, recognize your condition. Look what he says. Consider how far you've fallen. Jesus invites us to remember how we used to love him and others to admit that we're not where we once were, to realize and accept our loss of love, which is such an essential and necessary starting place, because without recognizing it, we have no hope of getting it back. Is that something I need to take on board? Is that something you need to take on board? Do you need to take it on the chin? Do you need to hear Jesus say, listen, consider how far you've fallen? Recognize that. Admit that. Admit that. And then secondly, Jesus says, repent. And there's a couple of aspects to this. We all know that the word means to turn around, to do a U-turn, to turn back. But it is a word that indicates intention and intensity. There needs to be a definite desire and determination to refocus and to shift the focus back to love for God and Jesus and others. And part and wrapped up in this is the place and importance of confession where we don't just accept that we may have lost or we're losing our first love. We, where we don't just admit it, but we confess it. And maybe even confess, and this is the case for me, I know, maybe even confess how other loves have taken priority. And that turning may involve changing our schedules, changing our habits, changing our commitments in order to restore intimacy. Intimacy. It may mean restarting certain practices. It may mean reordering your private world. But whatever it takes, Jesus invites and urges us to repent, to turn around, to rediscover, to return to that first love we had. And then thirdly, repent and do the things you did at first. In other words, go back and do the things that you used to do when you were in love. Redo them. Whatever it was, whatever it takes, don't force it. Not to force it, but to rekindle it. Recognize, repent, redo. And then there is this solemn and appalling warning. And these are from, this is from the lips of Jesus. If you don't repent, I'll come to you and I'll remove your lampstand from its place. And so the bottom line is, without love, the light goes out. And it can. It can, it would seem, happen. And Daryl Johnson says this, how many churches are but shells of their former selves? They have all the trappings, but there's no light in them. The lampstand's been taken away. It's a grim possibility but it's too serious and important to ignore. But again, there's always hope. And Jesus even says here, I want to mention something in your favor, guys. This is to the church in Ephesus. Look at this with me. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't know much about these guys. We will meet them again in chapter three, but clearly what they were doing was wrong. What they were doing was out of order and the Ephesian Christians were having none of it. And so whatever else this means or whatever else this is getting, it could be a reminder, and please hear me on this, that the call to love is not a call to abandon truth. It's not either or. It's both and. These guys were big in doctrine, which is great. But it seems that when they came to speaking the truth and correcting whatever, there was little or no love. Orthodoxy without orthopraxy, right belief without right behavior is a disaster. But Jesus isn't finished speaking to these Christians because he injects a promise for those who get this. For those who overcome, look at verse 7, to the one who is victorious, to the one who returns their first love, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Here's a really interesting aside. Every message to the seven churches ends with a promise of reward that is drawn from the rest of Revelation. So here, there's the promise of the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life is found in the first pages of the Bible, and it's in the last. It's there in the first creation in the middle of the garden, and it's there in the new creation in the middle of the city of God in Revelation 22. In the first creation, we all know what happens. The way to it is eventually blocked because of sin, but in the new creation, the blocks have been removed because of Jesus. By the blood of the lamb, by the death of Jesus, he opens up the way to us to eat from that tree forever. It is, as he says, it is a promise of paradise. And for those who rediscover and who reignite and who return to their first love, their hope and their future is out of this world. And so as I finish, and as the guys come back again, Verse 7 I started with, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says, not just to the church in Ephesus, but what the Spirit says to the churches. There is something in here for those guys. There is something in here for the other six churches named and identified in Revelation 2 and 3. But I also believe, and I know speaking personally, there's something in here for this church, for Windsor Baptist. So how do you react tonight? How do you respond, not to my word, and if I have said anything that is off myself, please, God, may it be forgotten. But how do you respond tonight to God's word? Do you sense a loss or a losing of your first love? Because if you do, as we close, I urge you to listen to the Spirit.